This is Viewpoints, a discussion of top news stories and the issues that affect you. From Canada's biggest talk show hosts, In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Well, hi and welcome to another edition of Viewpoints, where we talk about all of the big issues of the week. It was a busy one this week. I mean, some weeks it's a little bit uh, livelier than others. My name is John Moore. On the panel today, Tony Chapman, branding guru. Mark Warner, former senior attorney to the government of Ontario, now an international trade lawyer. And Laurie Goldstein is here from the Toronto Sun. Good to see everybody. Good morning. Nice to be here. Well, we have to start with policing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wonder if maybe we take, you know, the global look at things this week rather than sorting through bit by bit by bit. We had the Frasillo verdict, which was a little upside down, but effectively he was found guilty of an offense in connection with a civilian who was killed while he was on the job. Then we learn that four police officers are up on charges for having cooked up evidence, allegedly against a drug dealer, allegedly, and having then perjured themselves, allegedly. Then we have Mr. Shooty McShooty uh, finally facing some kind of disciplinary action for shooting a car near uh, Mark Warner's house. Uh, this was Mark Saunders, and uh, he gave a statement on Thursday morning. One of the things from law enforcement that we need to do is we need to look at um, our training uh, a lot better. We need to look at better solutions. And, and the go forward is exactly that. That is what we've done, and that's what we will continue to do. So I'm not going to go back in time. I'm going forward in time, and I'm hoping that that's the way we all are. We are going forward in time to see what we can do to reduce any harm to anybody that we deal with when there's a person in crisis. Let's start with the chief, as a matter of fact, because I was tremendously disappointed with his statement on Thursday morning. I don't think it actually hit the right gongs in terms of saying, I get it. Torontonians are beginning to wonder what the hell is going on. I thought it was perfunctory. He demonstrated that he didn't even really know the files on the four officers who had been charged. Uh, I'm not impressed. Tony? Yeah, I mean, I, I had the privilege in, over my career to work with leaders in small organizations, large locally and globally. And I can tell you that the one word that stands out for me is confidence. Confidence is the oxygen of business. When you lose confidence in your product, or your employees, your investors lose confidence in leadership, sweeping changes have to be made. I have no confidence after listening to that press conference. He, he, he didn't have the facts, he had a lot of rhetoric, and the reality is this, it, we, we need to have sweeping changes, and I'm not sure he's the guy in the rudder to, to lead them. Laurie, I wonder if behind the scenes he talks a great talk and maybe he's a really, really good administrator. But what I keep saying is he's missing that aspect that you want in a chief of police that the great strutting chiefs in uh, New York and, and other cities have had, which is I'm in charge. I get it. Yeah, I, I mean, essentially you want Rudy Giuliani without the partisan politics. That part of the job of a leader is to be there. Um, you know, David Miller, when he was first the mayor and there was a huge fire came came to the, to the scene no practical value but it, but it's but it's I'm here I'm I'm doing something uh, Stephen Harper his first act when he was the prime minister was to go and visit Afghan uh, our troops in Afghanistan beyond the wire um, and that idea of I'm I'm a leader um, the one thing I would say is that while I am disappointed with with how the chiefs handled it I'm very happy with my country and my city and the reason is Yes, these things are bad, but we're, we know about them. A police officer here goes on trial, and I understand people are confused by the jury verdict. I think it was the right one. I think they felt that he was justified in the first three. But the, and, and also, that would, attempted murder is not a, a light charge. It has yeah. a mandatory prison term of four to five years. And that jury said he intended to kill. 
Sammy Yatim. That's what it says. And, and to me, look what happened in the reaction. People like Julian uh, Falconer, the civil service lawyer, said, look, I don't like these use of force rules, but the days are gone when an officer had immunity. Also, in reaction to it, I didn't see any uh, black or brown leaders in the community saying, let's riot, let's do this. I think that shows a sign of our health as a community, Wh whatever, whatever our disappointment in the chief. Mark Warner. Well, I, I, I think that this is great progress. So let me start off and say that as someone who used to be very active in police shooting issues in the, in the 1980s. So I, I think we've come to a point in the city of Toronto where, where finally um, these issues are being handled up front. Um, not just, and also I look at the disciplinary charges and how quickly they, they, they came against the officers that were Justice Morgan, who I know and used to work with, um, um, uh, said that it looked like there was wrongdoing there. And even in the, in the case of the officer who shot um, the engine. So I want to say about Chief Saunders that what I think, what, what I th thought he was a good appointment at the time is he seemed to be someone who, having come out of the rank and file officers, had their confidence. I can't think of any of the police chiefs that we've had in my memory who would be able to take this kind of action and not have the officers already protesting and putting on funny colored outfits and that and hats and that sort of thing. And I think that's a testimony to his leadership. And one of the leadership, I agree with, with Tony about confidence, but one of the things also is to be able to have the confidence of your of the people who, who work for you. And and it seems that Mark Saunders does have the trust of the rank and file so that he can bring these kind of charges. Let's just be clear. Now Chief Blair, who had a personality, you know, look at how he stomped all over G twenty. So let's not go back. I'd rather not have the personality if I can have the accountability, which we've never had before. I think Chief Saunders is, has communications issues. He's improving. I was actually quite impressed with his statement. And that would have been, to be very honest, and Tony's a communications guy and I'm a lawyer, that would have been a heavily lawyered comment. Because, again, this bizarre world where our police officers have so many rights in, in, in the disciplinary proceedings that are, that are yet to come. He could not talk about the facts. His lawyers would have told him, do not touch on any of the facts. I get why reporters have to ask that, but to expect an answer from that is kind of silly. <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. You know, there's a great uh, story in business. Guy's walking through, stumbles on a rock quarry. What are you doing? I'm cutting rock. Second guy cutting rock. Third person says, I'm part of a team building a great cathedral. That is leadership. You need to have someone that's going to stand up and say, we need sweeping changes. We need to figure out a new way to police. It's not just about training. I'm going to focus on the future. My job as a leader is to take this police force where it needs to go in the city of Toronto. And so your points are well made. It's still a city that has transparency and accountability, but that's happening in the courts. I want the leader of the police force to be the person saying, here's our great cathedral. I'm going to lead the charge. So the problem I have that the leader who would have done that would have been Slawley, except the, the, his rank and file would probably have not gone to work for him. That was the problem I, I thought I had with that, is that he, he had the vision, but it's absolutely clear from the kind of way the union is reacting acting to his appointment is that the place would have been ungovernable. So I, I think I'm, I'm willing to give Saunders a bit more time. I mean, the other thing I thought Saunders got off to a slow start uh, with the communications issues on carding, where elements of the community got out and were, were heavily criticizing without expecting him to do what? Change carding overnight because he's a black police chief mm -hmm. officer in the first week of his appointment was silly. And then being frankly thrown in, thrown under the bus probably thrown under several buses several times over by the mayor who appointed him. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, he's, he had a slow start, but I think he's coming into his own. I just want to dig a little bit deeper into one of the cases this week, because I find it fascinating. And maybe it's because it seems like something out of an episode of Law & Order or another procedural show. Um, this is the what is alleged, that the police officers wanted to nail a guy for drug dealing. So they concocted a reason to pull him over. Then they concocted a reason to go into his car. Ultimately, it was a setup, and they perjured themselves. This is really serious stuff. Uh, but, Lori, I'll start with you. I had a lot of people texting me and emailing me and saying... I don't really care because they got the bad guy. That was his heroin. I saw, yeah, I saw, allegedly, yeah. I saw a defense of, and it did kind of disturb me, which was, I, I'm not sure if it was a police officer or not. It was, look, they didn't make up the heroin, right? They didn't take heroin from outside and put it into the car. They used, allegedly, heroin from inside the car and dusted it. To me, that, that totally misses the, the bigger point. And let's not be naive. These guys allegedly got caught it is not unknown for these things to happen in, in policing. And and it is serious. And and I think the real break, to my sense of it as someone who is a police supporter, and, and um, is that it was the G20, where there was a real break, particularly things like the Kettling thing and that. And as Mark Justify points out, not under this chief. So let's cut this chief some, some slack. But, um, but again... There are charges. They are going to be heard in court. In a corrupt force, in a corrupt city, we'd never hear about it. Right. You know, what impressed me is that, first of all, is, uh, is the lawyering. I just want to tip a hat tip to the, to the lawyer involved, because normally what, lo what lawyers would have done is that when the client makes an allegation like that, is they would have asked the police to basically review the record. And what was very interesting, what this lawyer did, is she, she didn't do that. She waited till the case actually began and then got discovery, and so that it was completely under the control of the judge. And at that, and that's and the judge who nailed this. And it's, well, it's, well, it's because the evidence that came out, um, because they weren't able to massage it. And what the, if you talk to defense counsel, they'd say, if you go the normal route that lawyers would do, of uh, asking the police to produce the evidence to the lawyer first before you get to the trial begins, the police have an opportunity to massage the evidence that they're giving. In this particular case, the lawyer. You know, it took some courage. Said, "Well, I don't want to have the evidence beforehand, not to be too technical," yeah. and that's what allowed it to come out, which is, which is, which I think is going to change the way people lawyer police cases for a while going forward. Tony, that same lawyer on our show said, in the same words as Lori, "It's not uncommon." She didn't say it's everywhere this kind of planting of evidence and false testimony, but it's not uncommon, and it makes you raise raises a lot of questions about policing. Not just policing, our society in general, this will to win. And the way we cut corners, uh, the way we cheat the system, and you see it in athletics, you see it in business, you're seeing it in our police force. And it's a sad state of society that winning is, we're so preoccupied that I've got to get this bad guy, even though I know I, if I stay on the course, he will eventually set himself up. I'm going to cut the corners and break the rules and break the law to do it. And I think it's, a, it's a, I listened to that interview this week, John, I was mesmerized by it, just saying, man, that's incredible if that's happening. As she said, you know, uh, it's not the norm, but happens frequently. I think that was her quote. Is it, is it, how, how frequently would this be happening, do you think, Mark? I mean, I don't, I mean I, I'm not a criminal defense lawyer, but uh, talking to my criminal defense lawyers, you, lawyer friends, you hear these kind of accusations a lot. I mean, look, it's not, uh, this is not a laboratory. I mean, it's not, uh, you know, some pristine environment, uh, you know, and so there is, there is, there's a lot of stuff that go, goes on, and there is a bit of a tension, and, and um, what you have to hope is that these kind of uh, decisions by this police chief, by the judge, Judge Morgan, Justice Morgan, um, are going to make officers think twice before they do this. But I, 
I think it is a bit of a battle. There. But do you think just because you, you think you're on the good guys and the cops, you have the sense of immunity? Is that what's happening? No, but I think... Psychology, the psychology of the police force now says those are all bad guys. I'm the good guy. I can do whatever I can. I, I think mean, it's a will to win. I think it's also a sense that they feel they're getting screwed in the court system. They know that, uh, that, that from their point of view that some sharp-talking sharp, sharp lawyer is going to trick them into saying things. Uh, the cases might be bumped. The people, the judges won't... Or, you know, send people to jail, and so they think they can try to tip. They tip the odds a little bit, and uh, I, I don't think that's all that uncommon. When we come back on viewpoints, hard to know who people are more unhappy about when it comes to the NBA All Star Game: Sting or a taxi protest. You're listening to Viewpoints on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Tony Chapman is here along with Mark Warner and Lori Goldstein. My name is John Moore. And folks, let's talk about another thing this uh, city is buzzing with, the possibility of a taxi protest on the NBA All-Star Weekend. Of course, all of this is over Uber. I have to say the taxi business so far, they haven't done themselves many favors. And certainly the guy who joined me on my show this week, who manages one company and is sort of the ringleader for protests, didn't help things, saying, yeah, I mean, we might protest, and maybe later we'll ask for forgiveness. And then he went after John Tory. Well, the biggest mistake is that John Tory is the mayor of Toronto. That's the biggest mistake, and there is no mistake. Any person in Toronto and Ontario that needs to get their message across needs to do job action. Demonstration, protest, strike is the way to go. So these guys are understandably angry, I think, with the city of Toronto that it's been so slow to figure things out, but it takes time to figure this sort of thing out. Or, Tony Chapman, maybe it doesn't, because this week Edmonton finally said, here, here's our Uber strategy, let's keep moving. Yeah, and it was just brilliant, get it done and move move on. I and mean, this is like, the cabs are like the horse and buggies circling gas stations. You know, the reality is why they're protesting, Uber's innovating, Uber eats, Uber carpooling. You know, th this company is on the move to change the way we move around the city in a very efficient way. And it, it started with an app, but it's just a brilliant organization. And the cab guys have got to start saying, I'm either going to compete with them or I'm going to move on. Well, look, you, we, we have a lot of things happening. We have taxi drivers who are absolutely desperate, um, many of them. These are, these are not the owners of the cab licenses. These are the drivers. Mm -hmm. um, we see owners um, losing basically their retirement because the value of cab licenses is, is plummeting. You know, to, 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 it was first of all, Tory's approval rating is at 73%. You're going to lose by doing that. But the bigger thing you do is you literally, if you do this during the All-Star Weekend, you literally, and everybody said it, you drive more and more people over to Uber, people who might not have gone because they're so furious at what the taxi industry is doing. Having said all that, the city has to act. Um, we keep, and I know it takes time. But we've seen it at Edmonton. Well, you can you can do something. And so th the idea is, is, look, and to me, the answer is deregulate the taxi industry. Um, you know, it, 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 there are certain ways you can do that. And who's going to compete? And maybe some taxi companies will die and all that kind of stuff. But, but we can't have this status quo because the one thing I'm sympathetic about is these taxi drivers go, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to pay for this. I got to keep my car and thing. I got to go get my license. I got to get I got to go down. And Uber does none of this. And then people, oh, it's so cheap. Well, of course it's cheap. It's not regulated. Right. Uh, Mark, <clears throat> on, on background, people at City Hall are telling me they're working as quickly as they can. But when it comes to the law and a government, quick is not the word. Yeah, I, I, I have trouble with that. I mean, I've been in government. I mean, you know, you move as fast as you want to move or as fast as your political leaders ask you to move. Um, you know, I, when I worked in, in, in government, in the Ontario government, in the McGuinty era, they often used to love to use the phrase they wanted to work at the pace of business. 
and often I had to tell them, well, actually, you're working faster than business. You know, <laughs> that's, you know that's some of the things you want to do, the reason you, you're going to make mistakes if you do it at that speed, because nobody in the private sector would do it at that, at that pace. So I, I don't know. The, the judge's decision came out in June. Originally, we were supposed to have things in the fall. Um, I don't know what's taking so long, frankly. We have models. I mean, I mean, let's be very honest. New York has a rule, or California has a rule. Mexico, oh, sorry, Mexico. New York City has a rule. Um, this isn't very hard. No. It's not as if Toronto is going to divine something that no one else has thought about. Of course we will. Toronto. And Edmonton has gone ahead. The Vancouver... I don't, so I don't know what the way it is, and we're not getting much. I mean, part of it is, frankly, John, I think John Tory's style as a mayor is yeah. to gather people who are people who are in the know in a room, and they all knock yeah. their heads together, but the rest of us don't get the to issue, know. The, Come out, John. Tell us what you are doing. The issue tell us sun, what the issues the issue are. The issue the sun is raised, what if unregulated re, uh, restaurants were springing out all exactly. across the city? Um, and obviously, like, they were established. They, hey, we're not paying any fees, licensing fees. Right. We don't need health inspectors, blah, blah, blah. The city would say, oh, it takes a long time. No, they wouldn't. They'd yeah. be down like gangbusters. But, Laurie, Laurie, the real issue for taxis is those poor guys wake up in the morning, give somebody $130 mm. to ride a car for I a agree. day. At the end of the day... They might make some money. I agree. Uber, you go out, you get 80 percent of the revenue. So that's the issue. The issue is not about regulation. The issue is the economics of the business. Is that the taxi plate owners for years had a monopoly, and and I honestly believe took advantage of these taxi drivers. And nowadays, the the, re the reality of the world settling in. So yes, we got to regulate the industry, but we also got to get the economics. If I'm a taxi driver, I should be getting paid from the moment I start driving my car, not hoping at the end of the day there's a few dollars left. I agree with family. all that. I and the smart drivers will tell you that they that. The presence of Uber in the market has reduced their lease rate for the cars, and they actually, and because that's come down so significantly, that's helped them. I do think there are there there are there are, there is a tough there is a legal issue that will be complicated involving you know whether the government has to compensate the plate holders for the diminution in value, and if that's what is holding this up, again, a little transparency from the city saying that this is what we're struggling with. But keep in mind, as as as, as Laurie has pointed out, these taxi drivers are losing market share between June. I mean, I've seen the estimates in New York. I haven't seen them in Toronto. But, the, you know, you, the, something like 40% of the market share has been lost. It's perhaps, over 50%. And that's over 50 in, now, in the yeah. last six no. months. So while it's fine to say the city's taking its time and then the market share will be Here, zero. Here's another time. prediction for you. Here's another prediction for you. Uber is going to start launching leasing car business yeah. and they will lease cars to people for $20 a day and they'll go out there and people are going to be able to, they can't afford a car and have to drive a taxi, will now get into the Uber franchise. Uh, I did mention there were a couple of things conspiring to spoil the NBA All-Star Weekend. The other was this week they announced that Sting and the Cirque du Soleil would be the entertainment, which put to mind a website called Stuff White People Like. I just, I, I looked at this. I mean, I like Sting, and I used to like the Cirque du Soleil. They bore me now. But uh, Tony, it just doesn't seem to be in tune with with what the NBA already offers. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know what they're appealing to. I mean, they, are, they have got a very raw street brand cred. Drake is the face of the Raptors. Why is Drake not leading the All-Star? And I've watched Sting. It's like watching paint dry. The guy's a great songwriter, but man, as a live performer, please. Laurie, your daughter's in the business. My first choice would be Drake. I agree with Tony. But my second choice would be Kanye West. This is the one he should be at. <laughs> I thought there was a great tweet from Rob Ford, or one of the Rob Fords on Twitter uh, this week, uh, who said something like, why didn't they invite Cher and the Vienna Symphony Orchestra? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was right. <laughs> okay, listen, we got to take a break, but in just a moment, the train that doesn't fit in the train station. Viewpoints continues on In Depth Radio. 
News Talk 1010. On Viewpoints, let's give everybody their full introductions again. Branding guru Tony Chapman is here. Mark Warner, former government attorney for the government of Ontario. Now he's in private practice, so maybe now he's making the coin. Uh, Laurie Goldstein is here from the Toronto Sun. I want to spend forever on this because I figure maybe the engineers are going to figure it out, but I was curious to know your reactions to the fact that they discovered, according to Marcus G. anyway in the Globe and Mail this week, that if they electrify the trains, they won't fit into the now re almost renovated Union Station. Mark, I'll start with you because you've had to work in government buying and arranging and all that kind of stuff. Is this a massive error or is it just the way things happen? You know, you're doing home renovations and you find asbestos. Well, I think the error is to do with planning. It really has to do with that if you when you when you plan something, you've got to plan for 10 years ahead. 15 years ahead, 20 years ahead, and stick to it. So it's not fair to say that, that they weren't, people weren't thinking about electrification back in 2006. It's just that they adopted a plan that did not involve electrification, and then Metrolinx changed its mind about the merits of electrification. And at some point, you have to say, you can't keep changing your mind every two years. And, you know, you just, we decided to build a glass, uh, at least part of that, uh, whatever it's called, the roof. Yeah. Um, a fancy word for it. Oh, shed is what they call it, right? What they yeah, call but it? it's an atrium. They're yeah, building, an atrium. Right? So for part, for part of it. But, but, but I always thought when I go down there is, how are they going to keep that clean with diesel trains? So you would have thought that at the time when they decided to go glass, they would have actually tried to integrate that thinking with the, with the thinking about eventually going well, electric. Here's where so. it becomes even more of an issue, Lori. The fact that there is glass is going to be a problem because if they put in electrification, then it makes it harder to wash without killing people. I guess what I would say about <laughs> these things is, is that a lot of this is a part of the green agenda of governments. Uh, electricity is better than diesel. So now we have this problem with the... Uh, station. If you recall, with the with the train tracks for the for the um, for the streetcars, remember how the pads don't match up, so you can't you can't you know. And then there's the fact. Well, could we get the streetcars, please? Because Bombardier, we're suing Bombardier for getting them. I would just remind the audience: these are the people who tell you they can fix the climate. Just remember that. <laughs> no, all right. I think they're more about trying to stop unfixing the, <laughs> the climate, but Tony? But they better hurry up with those Barbara J that stock went under a dollar. Uh, uh, you know, it, the problem I have with all of this is that I'd, is we just don't have the transparent accountability to say, how well does the government manage big infrastructure projects? Second point I have specifically to this is, we've known about electric trains. It's not like this is a new invention. I mean, <laughs> Europe runs on electric trains. Why wasn't this factored into it? And the last thing I'd say, and I'm not an engineer, I'm a brandy guy, but instead of spending a billion dollars to raise a roof, couldn't we in our RFP ask for shorter engines? You want smaller engine, the Shetland Pony version. The Shetland of Pony engine. I gotta believe you can take three inches off the height of your engine, which be a lot more affordable. Engines yeah. we haven't bought yet, a lot more affordable than changing well, we're the roof. Locked, locked into the purchase of the engines already, which is half the problem. But I, it, yeah, look, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to pick a lane and you have to stick to it. And Shorter that, engineers. That's, that's, then? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. No, but, I mean that, that's that's really what it comes down to. We we just seem to to not have the ability. The plan, like, you know, when the New York City had that great, well, I guess he's a great guy called Robert Moses, who really transformed New York City. Few people and, would argue with uh, you about that. But, but <laughs> you need to have someone who's, who has that kind of ability to make a plan and make it stick. And, and it seems since, we, since he ran Jane Jacobs out of town and she came up here, 
It just seems we've not been able to plan anything in this city. Although she prevented him. We don't have to get too deep into this. Oh, yeah, she prevented the destruction, the complete and utter destruction of Greenwich Village. Great. She, and, and she prevented the, destru- the destruction of some old neighborhoods like Cabbage Town in Toronto. But the, but the, and that was great. But the residue, or not the residue, the residual of, what, of, of her legacy is that we just simply seem incapable of doing long-range planning yeah. in this well, town. By well, the way, is Union Station, we're talking about the one that's going to be ready for the Pan Am Games, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the one next century. There's the, the macro. To me, the way I always say it is, I, you know, we have friends and visitors come from other parts of the country, and they, they want to take the transit system here. And, and you say to them, okay, I'm going to get you some tokens. And they look at you like your dog does when you're undressing, where, where the head sort of goes to the side, and it's like, what the? Like, I'm going I to Hong Kong. People. I'm, go- I'm going to Hong Kong in a few weeks, and my daughter Laura is telling me, yeah, you get this pass, and then you can buy like, like you can buy stuff on it, and da 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 da. Like, like we are so far behind on how you pay. But we wanted to create our own. Presto, because the, the technology only <laughs> existed in every city around the world. Exactly. So we got a bot for it's five cents on the dollar. Have to have the Canadian but that, no, that was a political fight about yeah. you have Presto, you don't have ticket takers. That, 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 exactly. was, that was a political fight, a union fight. All right. Where will they take their misery? Uh, speaking of grand events, uh, do we want Expo? Uh, looks like there's a push on, and I think the mayor's behind it. I, uh, not behind it necessarily as the engine, but that he's with them, that we should be bidding on Expo for 2025. Tony, I know you feel strongly about Absolutely, this one. Absolutely, we need Expo. I'll tell you why. Here's really? the reality. Next year, we're going to have a 60, $0.65 cent dollar, record unemployment. Think about that. Uh, record unemployment with a 65 cent dial. That used to spread. We need a new economy. Got to get away from pumping oil. Here's a wood. Take advantage of the CNE in Ontario place. Reimagine it. I'll tell you, the great expo in, in London in the 1980s, uh, re- industrial age. You'd looked at Chicago, put America on the map. New York World's Fair, how boomers would live as they started entering adulthood. Expo six, uh, 67, Habitat and Humanity. Yes, some world fairs have been dogs with fleas, but if we put one that said, how are we going to create a planet that's going to deal with overpopulation, underemployment? and put it in Toronto and and say this is the place and invite the great companies, the great uh, organizations, the great universities. This would be such a catalyst for Canada. We absolutely should put all our attention in winning this thing. See, now I'm all excited about it, Mark. (laughs) Well, again, I go back. This is my day for planning. So when when Mayor Drapeau went after uh, the Expo 67, he also had a plan as, a, as a being a one-two punch to get the Olympics and to bid on it afterwards. So a standalone expo on its own, I think, is kind of a waste of time. A kind, if, you, if we're using the expo as a platform to build out to hosting something, to making a serious bid for the Olympics, and we actually are planning what we're doing, then I think it's not entirely a negative idea. But um, so I, I'm kind of neutral on it. I, I, I guess that's what I would say. If we, if we could get our heads together to do something serious about it, which I'm kind of skeptical, then I, you know, I might be willing to go along uh, with it. Laurie, if we're building infrastructure, I'd rather something for us rather than the world. Yeah, the, Tony is a, is a great salesman, and he's caused me really just to, to reconsider a bit because I do remember the excitement of, of Expo '67 and how that that was. We had a new prime minister, we had a new cool prime minister, and and Canada was hot and cool and and was doing that stuff. Here's how we're going to live in the future. But but I absolutely agree with you. John, and I guess everybody, if you do this, you do it on its own merits. You do it because we're, we're going to be known as, as a global city. You don't do it to get something else. You know, we got the... Yes, up- you do to get something else. New economy, new industries. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. But I'm talking about like, like oh, we'll get housing. We'll get... Tra- no, we'll get no, the up it's express. Not, it's not a political platform. Exactly. We agree. Yeah, it's totally not agree. a political platform. Totally agree. All right. Oh, so you're now you're in? 
<laughs> I, I, well, look, in everything you want to see, you want to see what they've got, what the ideas are. Like, like they're going to have to sell us. What I'm saying is that I'm not necessarily out. Just, okay. Is it, okay. Uh, oil companies apparently have been uh, shifting things around, so they're taking big losses on raw, crude, so they've upped the refinery fees, and that's why apparently we're paying perhaps as much as 40 to 50 percent too much for gasoline at the pumps. Lori, you're nodding? Oh, look, these, <laughs> these are businesses that are rapidly losing um, um, money. And so, of course, they're going to they're going to look at different ways um, uh, to do things. It, it, it's it's really unfortunate. And again, it's the lack of transparency. Who in this country understands how oil well, oil pricing is one thing, but how gas prices are set? Because the combines investigation people keep telling us that the fact that every friggin' station and every friggin' company on the same day, except for a few loss leaders, happens to have the same thing, isn't. Collusion. In my view, fine, I accept that. It's not collusion. But I've spoken to very smart lawyers about this who say, well, if it isn't collusion, that's because the law must be very weak. Yeah, but it's a different kind of product, Mark, when you consider gas retail, because you're in your car. You don't have to decide, am I going to Costco or Woco? Right. Uh, you're in your car, so somewhere between your home and the office is going to be the cheapest gas. So that's why they all keep it at the same price. I mean, not to get technical about all this stuff, but, but look, there's an argument about when you think of a classic conspiracy or cartel, it's a case where people, I talk to you, John, and we agree on selling a price for something. And, and in some of these markets, it's what people call conscious parallelism in the sense that we don't need to talk. We can observe your behavior. And there are small enough players in the market that because I can predict your behavior, that's all smart I stuff. know what to price. And so that's, that's what it comes down. And it just so happens that that, that what we call conscious parallelism, yeah. is not illegal yeah. under, under modern notions of competition. Petition law and and or economics, frankly. So and there, as for the refineries, I don't know. This is like with the gas stations; it comes up every once in a while where people say that the refineries are agreeing or they're colluding. But again, I think it's probably more quick question of, of Here, uh, here's a business one hundred and one. They're vertically integrated, which means they control every touch point. Yeah. From taking the oil to the ground to the distribution. If one side's going down. They, they, they clip you on the other side. When you've got a virtual monopoly, which the oil companies have, they can get away with doing it. Because what are you going to do if they stop selling, bringing gas to gas stations? We're in trouble. So the reality is, this is just this is what happens when you allow vertical integration and a real concentration of industry. We're going to buy Tesla. That's what we're going to do. Maybe. Well, okay. And, and power it with Ontario Electricity. The right. fun continues on Viewpoints right after this. You're listening to Viewpoints on In-Depth Radio. News Talk 1010. Well, in this segment, we're going to talk about sex videos, Andy McDowell, and anger at York University, although there's never anything new at York University. It seems like somebody's always angry. All that and more. Let me first remind you who's on the panel. Tony Chapman is here, Mark Warner, Lori Goldstein. My name is John Moore. Let's start with this business at York, because I find it fascinating. It's actually a clash of freedoms, and there really is no clash. It's just that somebody's going to pay the price. We have a mural that was painted at the Student Center that some people would say is blatantly anti-Israel, blatantly anti-Semitic, perhaps. Um, it is from the reverse, somebody who's probably a Palestinian looking at a bulldozer, which may be building on uh, settler lands or demolishing somebody's house. He's holding a rock behind his back. So the suggestion is he's going to throw it. It's part of the intifada. Paul Bronfman is a businessman who has been donating cameras, doing internships with film students. And he said, you know what? Screw this. I'm not going to have anything to do with York University anymore unless they paint over the mural. Uh, Tony, it is all about freedoms because they're free to have the mural and they're free to do without his money. 
Yeah, I, I actually I think it's an incredible piece of art as well, and and the university should be very proud that a student created. It. I'm disappointed in them. I think that I think that freedom of expression is something that we need to embrace as a country, and the fact that he's you know using his dollars as a way of kind of uh, I, just, I don't want to use the word blackmailing, but, but persuading the school to uh, remove the mural, I think is offside. Although Laurie, I mean, he's using his dollars, which means uh, he can give his money. It's his money. I don't have a problem with any of this. I think that the, uh, the the depiction has a perfect right to be there. I may not agree with it, but who cares what I think? This is a university in particular. And uh, Mr. Bronfman has a right to put his uh, altruistic dollars wherever he wants. And the university has a right to say, as they have. And, and I, I'm astounded that, in this case, York University, which has made every mistake you can <laughs> on the issue of free speech, has finally done the right thing. We're sorry, Mr. Broffman. This is a free speech issue. We'd be very sorry to lose uh, uh, your money. Um, if I was Mr. Broffman, he has every right to do what he, what he's doing. The only thing I would say to him is that he's going to hurt the people that he um, rightly helps, and I would urge him not to do it. The film students, you mean? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. You know, I think back, there was a professor, back in when I used to, be, when I used to start doing a lot of uh, rallies and stuff around police shooting and anti-apartheid uh, causes in the 1980s, there used to be this old white guy, professor, I, I later learned from York University, who would always come out to all the rallies. He was a fixture on the scene. And... Um, Sometimes those rallies got heated and people became kind of anti-Israel. People would link the South Africa-Israel connection. And I remember once going up to him and saying, sort of apologizing. And he cut me off and he said, you don't have to apologize to me. You know, I'm not here for you. I'm here because, you know, basically he was a Holocaust survivor. He had been active in the civil rights movement in the United States and then ended up, you know, uh, um, shut out of teaching and opportunities in the United States and came up and became a math professor. He died just a couple of years ago. And I, I kind of I kind of missed that kind of strand. And I wish Paul Bronfman would, would be a little bit like that. Obviously, he has a right not to be like that, but to take a slightly bigger picture. That that I, I just had so much respect for, for this guy who said, I'm going to be at all these rallies and I don't care about the rest of it. And Laurie, my point is he fully has the rights to take his money away. I just think it's the wrong move. I, I think agree. of what happened with Goebbels and Nazism in Germany. I mean, propaganda. No, of course. I, think it, I think the freedom of expression is what allows... The more freedom we have with our expression, I think the more tolerant we become. I completely agreed with your observations. Yeah. And Ontario Guy, um, it's, I'm trying to figure out how to shorten the story, but let's say he's in a relationship with a woman. They're both 18, so they're of age. Uh, he gets her to do something sexy on camera uh, over, you know, video hookup. He tapes it, shows it to his friends. Then it ended up being uploaded on the internet. She sued him in court because there was nothing illegal at the time about what he did and she's won something like $140,000 and because he's so embarrassed about the whole thing he's going to pay her a thousand bucks a month until he pays her off. Um, Mark, what's the takeaway here? You know, this is one of those stories where, where I, I read it, I read several accounts of it, and I still, it's one of those ones where I just put it in the corner of my desk. I got to actually go back and read the judgment. So he was undefended in the case, which which raises a bunch of issues for me. Um, you know, I I, I I sort of wonder, could he not afford to defend himself in the case? Or he just or, didn't want to contest? Um, yeah, it's, it's something, I mean, our court, I would have, I, I sort of, 140000 is a lot of money for a Canadian court to award in a case. I mean, it's not the United States. So I, I, there's, some, there's a bunch that goes wrong. I would have thought that some sort of symbolic 
um, you know, award to say don't do this. But maybe 140 was because he didn't contest it. But I, I don't like what it stands. I, I'm not sure this is the right approach to dealing with that. Um, I'm not sure that $140,000 is, is yeah. it really meets the damage there. Worth mentioning, it was $100,000 in damages plus her court costs. Right. Yeah, I mean, look at what happened. You know, 20 years ago, flirting and flaunting was a muscle shirt or a miniskirt. Now it's just this sexting thing going on. And he asked her for a sex tape and then immediately shared it with his friends and then put it up on the Internet. And that emotionally scarred that woman probably for life. I think this is a great statement to let other people to think, it's, you know, just because it's something got sent to your phone, you have the right to publish it. I think it was a statement the court made for the society. Unfortunately, this individual's got to pay for it, but someone had to. Uh, it's a, a tough one uh, for me. I mean, to me, if you don't want to show up um, naked on the Internet... Don't, don't show up don't naked post, on the Internet. Don't yeah. post for... Well, well, in fairness, she didn't. I, I mean, you know, and, and I think her, her boyfriend sounds like this was very sleazy um, uh, behavior. But at the end of the day, and, and, you know, fine, this is sending a message, that's great. But at the end of the day, the only thing we can control is our conduct. And people have to be careful about their, con uh, their conduct. Let me give you an example. My, my, and another plug, my daughter uh, in July talk uh, did a movie called Diamond Tongues, which has had a lot of success. And one of the issues was her appearing naked in, in one of the scenes. And the videographer, who's also in July talk, said to her, you got to think carefully now, you know? Uh, you know, we're starting to get a name. If you're naked, it's going to go up on all these sites where, where, where stars are. And the result was it was they did it a different way. They did it suggestively. It was much more uh, intriguing that way. But it, but it, it's, it's the, you know, to me, I'm really grateful that that fellow had the chance to, to, to say it, to think, think about this. Because, you know, the other axis, well, you want to be true to the character and da-da-da and da-da-da. And so to me, it's all good judgment and yeah, common sense. Yeah, but it's sense. easy to say, but you're 18 years old, desperately trying to get attention from this boyfriend. She doesn't have some yeah. mentor telling her what you should or shouldn't do. She just wants this guy to love her. It's horrible. Of course she shouldn't be doing it. It's so easy to say that to people, but the reality is they're cyber bullies, and that's what he was. Yeah, but I don't, See, for me, I'm thinking $1,000 a month for someone at the start of their life, when he, you know, whether he's going to school or whether he's starting. I, it just seems disproportional to me, so I don't know whether... He, I'm curious, does he live here? Is it a case where he's already living in the United States somewhere and has no intention to pay, although some of the stories say he does intend to pay. But I, it, it just there's something missing, at least in the reporting that I'm reading, that doesn't make sense to me. Actress Andy McDowell learned this week um, that, yes, you could be aggrieved if you pay for first class and get bumped to coach, but don't complain about it on Twitter. Tony, this is a natural for you. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, this is the, the anarchists that live in social media. They're angry people. They used to kind of bark at the end of the bar, and now they have an internet and they have a voice, <laughs> and they rally, they rally together, and they just look for things like this. <laughs> I feel sorry for her. She was going to do a voluntary thing. She paid for first class, you know, and, and because she had her dog, she got bumped back to coach and tweeted because she was pissed off at the airline. How many people get angry at the airline and say something? But the fact that she's a celebrity, she's a lightning bolt for these uh, social media anarchists. Well, and, and Laurie, you've got a big uh, Twitter presence people, there's just an angry cohort of people out there who hate everything. Yeah, I, I often thank God for the the mute button. Because if you do block, they know you've blocked them. But if you do mute, they just don't know you're not hearing I them. I found it this week I was yeah. blocked by somebody I wasn't even following. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, to me, with, with Andy, in this case, I was totally with her. You paid for it. You didn't get it. The mistake she made was going on Twitter to say it. <laughs> Take it up with the airline company, right? Take it up with the, like, I paid for the seat. 
I didn't get it. I'm totally there. Um, you know, but we've had cases where, you know, Tony talks about people's lives being over. Remember the, the, the PR person who made a joke about him going to Africa? Mm. Hope I don't get AIDS. Get that. Stupid and sensitive, but for God's sake, she's not Joseph Mengele. Gets on the plane, doesn't know this reaction, comes off, her career's over. Like, so again, to me, it still comes back to it, and I totally agree with Tony. I wasn't trying to criticize that 18 year old girl, but, but everybody, the, the, it's good we have these warnings. Think before you put it on social media. Now, Just think. The thing about it is, you know, we all love Uber, we all love Airbnb, but inherent in the model of Uber and Airbnb is the notion that you do get these kind of instant ratings, right, of the driver, and that that's their business model. We don't need regulation because we're self-regulated because, we've, you know, the driver's ratings are right there. So, so there's a bit of a conflict between the way people are responding to this story, which don't go on Twitter. Because this is how we get people honest. I actually believe that, you know, and I do it myself, if, if, I, if, if I'm mistreated or whatever by, a, by an airline or whatever, I'm getting on Twitter. I'm getting on Facebook. And they respond. You know, Rogers and Bell, why would you wait two hours on the phone with Rogers and Bell in India? You know, when you can just go on Facebook and have them call you 15 minutes later. Yeah, I guess the difference is that you're not part of a, uh, a celebrity type that needs I'm not love. a celebrity, John? No, but... <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I need love. You're right, I don't need love, but I am a celebrity. <laughs> but worth mentioning, because, I mean, I love talking about how quickly digital technology is evolving. Tony, before Christmas, I was staying at a hotel in Ottawa. I was at the Chateau Laurier, and I just took a picture because it was foggy outside my window, and I said, look at Ottawa this morning. They recognized somebody from the... I didn't hashtag it, I didn't do anything anything to it. Somebody at the hotel said, that's the Chateau Laurier that he's at. And they tweeted at me, hope you're enjoying your stay at the Chateau Laurier. Now that's marketing. That's marketing. It's frightening as well that we're getting, you know, that the, the brands are getting so attached to your location. Turn your location off on your cell phone because it's, incre it it's incredible what marketers are doing now to track you and try to persuade you to buy. Uh, speaking of marketing, not a lot of time here, but quick thoughts on Barbie getting a makeover. She's going to have multiple body types. Uh, Mark, I'll actually start with you because I remember when it was controversial when they, they made black dolls. Yeah, well, you know, there's, there's a great deal of literature that went into this around, uh, around you know, the, the American case of Brown versus Board of Education that led to sort of desegregating the schools. And the testimony, the key testimony the court accepted in the United States was, was this idea that the feeling of inferiority of, of black children came around their feeling around not having a not choosing a black doll, choosing a white doll. So, so these, there's a lot that goes into to image and having something that looks like you. And so I could see that having a, a body, that, a, a body, a Barbie that looks like like uh, young girls actually look like uh, is probably a, a healthy thing. Yeah, my my daughter loved um, Barbies, loved playing with them, had a whole bunch of them, and now she's a feminist rock and roll star. So I'm not I'm not I'm not worried about. The, the, but, this has been but, a good show for your daughter. Uh, but, <laughs> I know exactly. As much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> the, the kids have moved on. Uh, tablets, electronics, yeah. and the fact is that Hasbro, their competitor, has the Frozen franchise. Uh, it, it's a it's a sad day for Barbie, but uh, I don't care what they do. They can make it look like Kim Kardashian or Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, Barbie's days are, are over. And our time is done. Thank you so much. Tony Chapman, Mark Warner, Lori Goldstein. My name is John Moore. A few more names for you. My thanks to the folks behind the scenes. George Sofidis, Jesse Lorraine, Robert Turner, Becky Coles. Keep it right here on the Mighty 1010.